Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. On today's episode, I'm going to be joined by Sean Wagner. He lives in Alberta, Canada, and has been trained as a materials engineer with a master's degree in materials science. So him and I are going to discuss the NWMO proposed canister for spent fuel, uh, the steel insert of the canister, the copper coating of the canister. We're going to go over a couple of different research papers and uh, hopefully shed some light on corrosion and what that means for the NWMO proposed project. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Sean. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this. Not a problem. And if you don't mind just taking a couple of seconds and introducing yourself so people know who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is Sean Wagner. I run Alberta Nuclear Nucleus out west, but my original training is actually as a materials engineer, and my master's degree was in designing coatings for corrosion and erosion protection in hot bitumen pipelines. So I'm my entire, basically my entire lab was devoted to corrosion uh, work. And most of my colleagues that I worked with were doing some form of corrosion or erosion work. So it's a, it's a topic that I have quite a bit of experience with, at least in the lab. Yeah, so super relevant to what we're going to talk about. Very relevant. The entire purpose of why I'm here actually. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, so the NWMO containers are the, the steel with the copper corrosion on it. And the big point of contention with a lot of people opposed to the project is the speed of corrosion of the copper. So yes. like, what exactly is corrosion for people who maybe don't okay. know how that happens or what it is? Okay. Um, corrosion is basically, <laughs> the ironic part is corrosion is basically what makes batteries work. You take one, you take a, a material that has a, a strong desire to pull more electrons into itself, and you mix that with a material that has a desire to give up electrons and that, or even not really a desire to give up electrons, but holds on to them less strongly than that other item. And normally what causes all of our corrosion is oxygen. It's, it's the most prevalent. We, we actually call them oxidizers because of how prevalent it is. Uh, material out there. But other common sources of corrosion initiation <laughs> are things like chlorine or fluorine. Uh, sometimes you can get sulfur causing corrosion. And these will all operate under different mechanisms, but they all, be, they all behave in basically the same way. Oxygen, sulfur, chlorine, and fluorine, they will pull electrons out of uh, solid materials like iron or copper or chromium or things like that. And they'll bond with them to make uh, ceramic materials, which is what rust really is. It's a ceramic that's forming on top of a metal. And this happens everywhere all the time. And depending on your temperature or your humidity or any other things, you can speed up or decrease the rate of corrosion that happens at the surface. As, as I was saying earlier, corrosion isn't one giant difficult thing to understand. It's, you know, dozens of really simple things that can just combine in really weird ways to make your life difficult. <laughs> so the main thing, kind of the first thing that I would really want to want people to understand about corrosion is that it's actually not always destructive. I, I guarantee you've all seen something that is completely corroded 
and not actually known it. And that's like an aluminum fork, like an aluminum fork, an aluminum spoon, anything that's made of aluminum, that is actually an entirely corroded surface that you're looking at. Hmm. It's, and oh, it's I true. Not know that. Yeah, because when something corrodes and it forms that ceramic or oxide on top of it because of the oxygen bonding with it, the molecule that it makes can actually be smaller or larger than the kind of crystal of metal underneath it. Right. If it's smaller than the crystal underneath it, you'll get how iron rusts. You'll get something that forms a layer and then shrinks, which exposes more of the iron underneath it, which causes more rust, expands, makes the ceramic, shrinks, and it digs its way in. And that's what causes iron to rust away, is the fact that the ceramic is actually a smaller crystal than okay. the metallic crystal underneath it. Aluminum, on the other hand, when it rusts and forms alumina, aluminum oxide, the alumina oxide crystal is actually larger than the aluminum crystal underneath. So what happens is you take this chunk of aluminum, you expose it to oxygen, and then it expands and it covers up more of the aluminum underneath it. And it prevents oxidation from happening because the oxygen can't actually reach it. I did not know that. I always thought that yeah. all corrosion was damaging. Nope. Nope. It's, it's called uh, it's called a passivation layer in the technical terms, but another way that you can actually, you've probably heard of something similar like this happening before is called a patina. Okay. Yeah. A patina is something you get on, you know, silver or copper. <laughs> and these are protective oxide layers or other chemical combinations of oxygen, chlorine, sulfur, some of them, not all of them will be patinas. Some of them are actually smaller. I do believe sulfur is a destructive uh, corrosion coating on it, but that's something else. Hmm. But yes, co copper will actually form a patina and protect itself, which is why we have, you know, copper and bronze statues from thousands of years ago that are still around. Or, right. you know, you find corroded bronze swords at the bottom of the Mediterranean, even though they've been there for, you know, 1500 years. I have learned, I've already, my mind's already blown. And Five so minutes that, in. That's, that is the fundamental reason why most DGR plants come with, you know, copper coated surfaces because they know it'll form a patina and it'll protect the rest of the copper for quite a long time. And so what people are trying to say is not that, you know, oh, copper corrodes and it's not actually protective, but that people are kind of saying, oh, copper is corroding a lot faster than the plan is. And so the, the question then becomes, you know, how do we, how do we actually kind of figure out how long this is going to last and why is the DGR having only such a thin layer of copper on the outside when, you know, some plants for the United States have entire copper canisters. Yeah. And, and that question and comes up a lot too, in regards to Sweden, because I think it's Sweden who plants for like five centimeters of copper, but it's yeah. the same. I'm pretty sure. Don't quote me on this because it's been a while since I looked at Sweden's plans specifically, but I think they're just copper. They don't have a steel insert, which is yeah. part of and, the problem. So it's for structural integrity. Well, actually, actually, there's a there's a neat thing that you can if you understand some of how to look up information about corrosion, which I can tell you about. There's a really neat thing that will happen with the uh, Canadian DGR canisters as they corrode. And there's a reason for them to have steel other than simply uh, a structural method. Oh. So 
Yeah. That's, I might know. learn a lot today. Hints, hints for later. <laughs> nice. So let's start with, do a little quick walkthrough because you are much better versed in this than I am. I'd like to look at the, I'm not even sure what the right way to say it is, but the, is it a, det- would you call it a detractors paper? Uh, no, I, I actually, I wouldn't say that the paper that we're going to look through is, is written by detractors because when you read through it, as we'll show, it's actually a case of people uh, being very picky about the quotes that they pull out to make it seem like that. No, uh, but yeah, this is the, uh, the Holtquist and Graham et al. paper, Corrosion of Copper in Distilled Water Without O2 and the Detection of Produced Hydrogen is the one that we're going to be looking at. Okay, and um, just for anybody listening to you, I will link these papers in the comments just so people can follow along with us if they want to. And Sean, just so you know, I'm going to pull it up. So if it looks like I'm not looking at you while we're talking, it's because I'm looking at the paper, but I am listening. Don't worry. Don't worry. I've got the paper right here. So basically, the first kind of major thing is right in the first paragraph. It's the people will say, you know, however, a printing error in a reference concerning the stability of a hydrogen-free reaction project means that a hydrogen-containing reaction product, and then they list the specific uh, reaction product that copper corrosion will have that will release hydrogen into the environment. This is, this is what they're using the hydrogen gas in the system to measure the reaction rate of. Mm-hmm. So this is, you'll make copper hydroxide as a corrosion coating on the outside, which is one of the, it's actually the material that gives patina that green color. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this is one of the main components of a copper patina and you measure how much has been formed by measuring how much hydrogen has been evolved from the surface. Because when you have water in contact with copper, the only way to get copper hydroxide is for one of those hydrogen atoms in water, H2O, to split off and vanish from the system and it'll join up with another random hydrogen and evolve out of the liquid. And so that's what they measure. And they use that to measure how much copper hydroxide is on the surface. So they say that copper hydroxide is favored over hydrogen-free reaction products, which are copper oxide and copper two oxide in the copper water reaction. This fact is not generally known and emphasizes the need for characterization of hydrogen in the reaction product. So when you're reading this without a kind of understanding of how scientists write papers, you might think, oh, this is a, this is a paper against, you know, using copper as a thing. It's just, it's just saying like, no, this is, this is something different than what we're saying. So this is how we're going to characterize what the oxidation processes are. So it's not, it's not actually a gotcha statement. It's more of a, here's how things actually work. And then they continue on to do actually very good science about how they discovered this work and how they characterized everything. The next piece that I have in here that is highlighted is actually in the next paragraph. So they're talking about hydrogen pressures and using it for how they measure, how they measure the amount of corrosion product on the surface. And so they're saying that, you know, when you report hydrogen from copper corrosion and you have to do it in a liquid distilled water in the absence of any potential so that they're not applying electricity to it. Right. So that they're just, they're just leaving it in distilled water and seeing how long it goes. And so 
relatively recent work has measured hydrogen gas pressure, which will ultimately be in the millibar range. So very, very low hydrogen pressures because very small amounts of hydrogen. Right. But then they say that the pressure is an order of a thousand times higher than the hydrogen gas pressure in ambient air. And of course, if people are just cherry picking their quotes, they can say, oh, look, there's way more hydrogen than you would expect. It's like, no, it's just there's more hydrogen than there is in ambient air. So we can actually get a pressure differential. Right. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of writing going on in here that is scientific and specific to showing how it is relative to known standards of measurements that if you take out of context can be used to say, oh, look, this is much different than what is expected. It's like, no, it's different compared to the standards that they're using to measure it. Yeah. And it's similar to me, like when people talk about radiation and they talk about, you know, radiation versus background radiation, or, you know, they take the radiation, but they use different units and people are used to hearing to make it sound terrifying because it'll end up being a huge number. Yeah. 10 to the 15 Becquerels. Okay. But a Becquerel is insanely yeah. tiny yeah that actually means nothing <laughs> but after that the next the next like major component of this paper doesn't actually come until like the latter half of the second page and this is this is actually where the major misconceptions are coming from so when you go into their their experimental section is just detailing how they set up their experiment how they measure things talking about making sure everything is sealed, how they measure their uh, hydrogen production using a palladium membrane, because palladium is a palladium is a very expensive metal, but it has a very neat property of being quite porous to hydrogen. So hydrogen okay. will actually go into palladium metal very easily, which you can then take the palladium metal out. You can, you can either measure it in situ by just measuring how much hydrogen is coming through the palladium metal barrier, so that you're only receiving hydrogen as your info, as your source that you're measuring, or you can take the palladium out, heat it up and measure how much hydrogen comes out of it. And that way you can figure out what your partial pressures of hydrogen inside your system actually are. Okay. So that's, that's why they use a palladium, uh, measure, uh, palladium membrane for that. And so what they find is that they, they were getting significantly more hydrogen than they thought they should be. And they were looking as to reasons why. And they found that, you know, the basic generic chemical reaction of metal plus water goes to metal oxide plus H2 was under reporting how much hydrogen would be evolved. And so they were just like, okay, this isn't, this isn't right. And so it says, it says right here, which is probably the major part that the antis are going against is this line right here in the sec i i really wish they had line numbers for this i know right but it says here uh this calculation will result in an underestimation of the thickness of corrosion products in that the hydrogen contained in the corrosion product in the copper metal and in the palladium membrane is not taken into account so it's saying that the generic normal method for estimating thickness from hydrogen evolution is not accurate in this certain stance because the hydrogen, because the reaction pathway is different than the normal, because instead of going to an oxide, it's going to an actual uh, hydroxide uh, corrosion product. Okay. So you, you end up with a different crystal structure, which causes a different thickness. So you need to take that into account. 
And then, so here it says, the extent of underestimation depends on the thickness of the corroding sample and the palladium membrane. And the true corrosion rate may be at least a factor of three higher than the calculated from hydrogen gas release rates. So this, this one right here, this is what the people who are worried about corrosion are worried about. Yes. <laughs> but, but the problem is, is that they're, they're not reading it right. They're reading it in saying that it's corroding more when in fact, what it's saying is that it's, it is probably, it, it could be corroding more. It could very well be corroding more, but it's the fact that it's not actually just a straight oxide corrosion. You have this hydroxy corrosion product that has a different crystal structure. So not only might it be corroding faster than the original, uh, than the original product is the original equation is saying that it should, but also that it's creating a different material in the end, which has a different crystal structure, which causes it to thicken up more than it, more than a, a standard oxide would. What they don't tell people about is that in the very next line, the paper explicitly states what the actual corrosion rate is. With this factor taken into account, the corrosion rate for the copper sheets is estimated at 0.01 to 0.1 microns per year at room temperature. They'll, you'll never get anyone on the anti side to say these numbers because these numbers state that for the NWMO's design for a copper clad container, that the copper will not corrode for. A, for on average, a minimum of 30,000 years. That's minimum. how long it'll, that's how long it'll take for the first corrosion to make it through the copper layer. And that's minimum. It could be on average 300,000 years, depending on the corrosion rate, because that's right. the difference. That's the difference between 0.01 and 0.1 microns per year with a 3000 micron coating, which is what which is what they, uh, they have on the uh, NWMO. Oh, okay. So that, that three millimeters of copper can, can protect the internals of that, that entire canister for 10 times longer than all of known human history. Yeah, that's crazy. And sorry, I know not, like when sorry, you're looking not ten, at- not, not 10 times, three times longer than all known human history because we've got records that go back about or not records, but we have proof of human society going back about 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And that's the minimum. That's the minimum. It which, could be 300,000 years. Which does kind of, it boggles my mind when you start talking to opponents of the project and they bring up the copper and how it's going to corrode eventually. Well, yeah, eventually it is going to corrode. Everything will, but it gets to a point where like you have to also factor in, right? The bentonite clay, the rock formation, all of those types of things, which we're not even talking about today. We're just tackling the container, but it, it gets to a point where, you know, at what point do we do what's best for us today and the next foreseeable future where we're pretty sure there'll be humans, at least we hope there'll be humans for a few yeah. hundred years, at least. Um, like at what point do we do what's best for us in the, in the, you know, um, immediate future? versus planning for some unknown civilization 16 million years from now. Exactly. It's, not saying that's it, not important, but I think we need to put more 
value on the society that's living today. <laughs> you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Especially considering that now I get to talk about the interesting part about why there's a bilayer system on the cop- on the canisters. Yes, because please do. After the first hole is made in the uh, is made in the copper. Because as soon as the first hole is made in the copper and you have water connecting the copper to the steel layer underneath, now you have a battery or what is called a, a redox cell. Redox reduction oxidation reactions are a very large part of chemistry and they're a very important part of uh, corrosion activities when you have multiple types of metals together. What you can do, what you can do, and what everyone listening at home can do is they can actually go onto Google right now and pull up what's called a redox table, mm-hmm. and it'll give you a list of potential voltages for what are called half reactions of materials, and it'll say so. Right at the top, you'll see F two, which is fluorine gas, yep. plus two plus two electrons goes to two F minus. This is the most powerful oxidating reaction that we have. The half reactions are used to show um, how one element in a chemical reaction will uh, change when it is reacted. And we can rank these by their uh, potentials, their voltage potentials. And this will show how likely something is to happen. And you'll see that if you have it up, you'll see that everything's listed in terms of voltage and it goes from positive like a high positive voltage of the fluorine reaction at 2.87 volts all the way down to some negative voltages. And what's happening there is that those voltages are showing how much that reaction wants to proceed in the direction that it's written. And that sounds a little confusing, but it basically means that once you've reached zero volts on this table and you start going below it, that means that these half reactions actually prefer to go the other direction. Okay. So that's, that's the way to look at it. And here's where the neat stuff comes in. Because if you look through this, you can actually find copper, iron, and chromium on most of these tables. And you'll find that other than one specific iron half reaction, copper is above iron in terms of positivity of its reaction. So it prefers to go in the way that it's written. And then iron and chromium are significantly further down. They prefer to go in the opposite direction. So iron and chromium like to lose their electrons. They like to give them up and give them out to other things, which is why they is which is why iron rusts so easily because it likes right. to give up its electrons and bond with oxygen and turn into rust where it's nice and stable. <laughs> chromium is even more uh, prevalent in doing this, but there's a there's a I, just like I was saying before with aluminum, chromium also does this thing where it forms a passivating layer. And that's what makes stainless steel stainless. All the chromium in it forms this passivating layer of chromium oxide on top of the surface, and it prevents any more rusting from happening. So if you look at these, if you look at the redox tables and you think about how the canister is made, you have this thin layer of copper on top, and then you have this layer of stainless steel underneath. So what happens when that first little bit of copper is finally penetrated through and you make a connection between the stainless steel underneath and the copper on top with the water there, you form a little electrical circuit. And what happens is that it turns the entire outside of the container into the copper electrode 
And that tiny little bit of material that's underneath becomes your chromium electrode because chromium is far more electronegative, which is the term that you use for this, than iron. So what happens then is that means that all of the chromium that's in contact with the copper that's bonded to it, yep. whenever, the, whenever the copper tries to corrode on top, what it'll do is it'll actually pull an electrode from the chromium up into itself and it'll cause the chromium to start corroding underneath the copper. So your copper will actually generally stop corroding while it's connected to the stainless steel underneath. Oh. Until And so your copper stops corroding for quite a while until the, all the chromium that's in direct contact with the copper layer underneath, it'll actually start to oxidize underneath and it'll form a barrier layer between the stainless steel and the copper. And this is what is corroding while the copper is being protected by this chromium underneath. So once that happens, you eventually get this nice, thick, electrically insulating layer of chromium oxide underneath all of your copper. And that'll seal off the, entire, uh, the entirety of the uh, stainless steel canister underneath. Once that happens and there's no more electrical conductivity between the two, then the copper starts corroding again and eventually it'll all go away. But now you have this really thick, nice, oxide layer of chromium underneath that's preventing the water from reaching the iron. So you now have a stainless steel layer underneath that is even more protected than normal stainless steel would be because it's got this thicker layer that you basically grew underneath it from the electrical conductivity between the two layers. And the thing is, is that if you look at the table here, you'll see that actually making chromium go from its oxidized state back to its metallic state, which you would need to do in order to actually start rusting the entire stainless steel canister underneath it, is not a spontaneous reaction. You need to put a lot of energy into it to get that oxygen out. It's very, it's very, very difficult. You generally, you generally need a stronger oxidizing agent than oxygen in order to do that. And the only thing that naturally occurs in most places is chlorine. So you need chlorine in order to actually get through that oxide layer and start rusting your stainless steel. I don't know how much people know about the geology of granites. Chlorine isn't something you really find in granite rock. <laughs> yeah. So the only thing is to here in South Bruce is we're limestone. So that might be a little different, but um... that's that, that would be, you would end up with a carbonate. You would probably have a little bit of salt in there, which is where you get most of your chlorine from. But a carbonate is a carbonate is a different thing. It's not quite as electronegative as chlorine. I don't know if a carbonate would be able to actually get through a chromium layer. I assume that eventually it would be able to because energies of reactions are statistical things. And I really don't want to get into statistical thermodynamics because I hated that course in university. <laughs> but basically, but basically, when you think about anything at a specific temperature. It's not, not everything in a volume of material is at that specific temperature. That temperature is actually an average of the energies of all the particles inside that volume. So you're always going to have some particles that have enough energy to actually hit something and rip something apart. Right. So it just means that the reaction will be extremely, extremely slow. Right. So just, 
trying to like wrap my brain around this in like a layman's terms because that was a lot <laughs> that I did not know. So like as the copper corrodes and then you have the corrosion process of the steel, it actually makes the container safer. Yes, it, it will. It will in fact kind of, it automatically forms another barrier between a, uh, well, not another barrier, but a thicker barrier between them. It right. kind of grows, grows a, a thick, a thicker skin for it. Right. So the corrosion of the copper actually reinforces the steel. Yeah. It, as long as, as long as there is actually a, a connection between the two. Right. So if you get a, if you get a pit in the copper that actually causes there to be, cause you need, you need a way to electrically conduct between the copper and the steel in two directions. So you have your, you have your connection that you get from just the copper and steel laying on top of each other, but then you also need the connection of the water coming through between the copper and the steel underneath it, making that connection there because it's, it's like a battery. You need to connect the circuit and there needs to be a way for electricity to flow in huh. there. That's cool. That's, as, that's as I almost said, sold me more on the safety of the containers. <laughs> yeah, corrosion, corrosion is corrosion is a very predictable thing. And predictable things can be taken advantage of. So when you can predict how things are going to react over long periods of time or even short periods of time, you can design things so that they will react in ways that are beneficial to you. And that's right. what a lot of engineering is all about. Yeah, and I, I do find that interesting. Most people in South Bruce are not scientists admittedly, right? Most of us are not scientists. I myself, am not a scientist. And I think a lot of people take for granted just how predictable a lot of these processes are. And I, I don't know if it's not wanting to believe that it's predictable because it's easier to say you can't predict that than to believe the science. Um, yeah. But my mom will tell everyone that I am the biggest science supporter. Don't come at me with science denialism because I can't handle it. I just can't handle it. Um, but yeah, I do find it amazing how predictable these processes are and how it is possible to take advantage of things that we know will happen to help make it safe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. And, but the thing is, is that this kind of, you know, taking advantage of a system in a, a novel way is it, it kind of run counters to most people's experiences because the, the experience of people is that rust makes rust makes things go away and that's bad. Yeah. And so that's, that's what people think. They don't think of corrosion as a process that can be planned and kind of shepherded in a direction. Yeah. They or think even of beneficial. Just, exactly. They think of it as just, you know, this thing that, you know, the bottom of my car is rusting out because of all the damn salt on the roads, like rust equals bad. It's yeah. that's, that's the thing. And it takes a lot of, it, it takes a, it takes a lot of kind of time and experience with how to how to turn the story on its head when you're doing science to be like, okay, no, it's like rust is not good or bad. It's simply a process that happens. How do we make it happen in our benefit? And that's, that's something that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to kind of learn how to do, let alone to convince other people is a thing yeah. that you can do. Well, for sure. Even like until today, like I said, I had no idea that corrosion could be a positive thing yeah. you know like i've always viewed corrosion as bad like you said your car starts to rust apart and you're like oh man my car's falling apart and that's that tends to be what people think of when they think of corrosion yeah yeah it's uh it's 
it's a it's it's that that disconnect between how we see the world and how we can describe the world basically and, right. and it, once you go beyond people's normal like normal experiences then it's just like okay i i have to convince people of this because i know this is what people think but this is how the world works and it's the same thing but people just don't experience 80 percent of it because right. this is the vast majority of how things go so we're going to end up splitting this episode into two parts. So this is where part one is going to end with Sean. And hopefully next week I can put up the second half and we can continue our discussion on corrosion. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.